Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. I'm Russell Brand. This week's episode is fantastic. It's me and Karamo Brown from Queer Eye, a fantastic psychotherapist, commentator, counsellor, and may I say dreamboat. It's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. You'll have to forgive the murmuring in the background. That's my young daughter who made her way in here, seduced by Karamo's irresistible, potent and incredible charisma, which I, I will say I have been as well. It was a really lovely episode. But before we get into that, remember, we are now on the Luminary app. If you haven't downloaded the app yet, you have to download it. Go to luminary.link forward slash Russell and get free months for free. Under the Skin will be exclusively available on Luminary from the 20th of May. So you can carry on enjoying it, but get that app downloaded. It'll really help me as well to feel confident that you're all coming with me onto Luminary. I'm in LA right now, uh, so keep an eye on my social media for announcements and russellbrand.com for tickets because I'm performing live stand-up, recovery live, in front of small audiences. They're fantastic events. Mabel, will you be quiet because Daddy's working? Can you be quiet? Just for a minute while Daddy does this work. Good girl. Good girl. So watch Daddy. Good girl. Well done. You're fantastic and you're bright and you're strong. Yeah, if you would stop talking, because I've got to do these announcements. Do your work there, so you can. Uh, yeah, you can get the. You can download the link luminary. Dot link forward slash Russell to get the Luminary app, and to get tickets to see me live performing recovery live. You're supposed to be not talking. Why are you talking? If you want to come and see me in front of small audiences, yes, darling. I'm, I'm talking. I know you're talking, but actually, like I'm actually doing a podcast right now. So look, just watch russellbrand.com and look at my social media sites, e.g. Uh, you could look at Rusty Rockets on Daddy, Twitter Daddy, and True Russell paper. Brand. Yeah, this is the paper with the information for the podcast on it. Okay? Um, yeah, you can touch it. I mean, it's only a bit of paper. I mean, I don't know why you're so enamoured of it. Daddy. Yeah? Okay. So, and also, check out my YouTube channel for more of those spiritual videos and clips. And thank you for all your kind compliments about those videos and clips. I'm most flattered by your interest. Here's some stuff that people had to say about Devon Brown, last week's guest. Wasn't he fantastic? Anna Franklin says, one of the best conversations I've heard on this show. Thanks, Russell. You really let Darren have his say, and I'm impressed with his mind. Like, like that, me letting him have a say is a good thing. Well done for not shouting over your guest and eliminating them from the conversation. Very attractive man, too. I always tend to fall for gay men. Darn, says Anna Franklin. Wait till you get a load of Karamo. You're going to go nuts, love. Just because, says, the fact that Darren Brown thinks he's shy and introverted blows my mind. Yeah, I know. I'm surprised by that, just because. Adrian Mallory says, at Rusty Rockets, really enjoying listening to Hashtag Under the Skin with Darren Brown in the beautiful Lake District. Unfortunately, otters were a bit camera shy. Good to find out how he healed my back pain years ago. Do you reckon that's true? I mean, do you reckon that really is one of the people? Because Darren Brown was going around healing people. And whilst he was keen to say it's solely placebo effect, I myself think that something happens where your healing systems kick in when you're told that they that they ought to, possibly by Darren Brown. Mike Zarka goes, I don't remember what was said in the podcast, but I woke up and went through my emails. Turns out I bought all of Darren Brown's books and content. Weird, I don't remember doing that. You better get out there and buy all my books and content. I'm talking mentors. I'm talking recovery. I'm talking get yourself on Netflix and watch Rebirth right now. But before you do any of that, stay with us on Luminary. Get that link. Download that app. Come on now. 
and enjoy this wonderful conversation with Karamo Brown. There was one bit where he's talking where I was actually just contemplating whether or not I could live a gay life happily with him. That's what I was thinking. Then I thought, is it wrong to objectify men? Because if objectification is wrong in the case of women, which I know it to be, is it also wrong? Sorry, yeah, I'm having this conversation in front of my two and a half year old. Yes, darling. Yeah. You're drawing the microphone, are you? You're an extremely gifted and strong individual. I'm very, very impressed with you. Very impressed indeed. And also, Karamo Brown, a very impressive, bright... You think this is a hula hoop? It's not a hula hoop. This is a microphone, Mapes. Yeah, that's right. So please enjoy this interview with Queer Eyes Karamo Brown, my fellow luminary podcaster, and I will say, as of now, potent man crush. But what a wonderful, warm individual. Enjoy this episode with Karamo Brown. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. You have such a charming smile. Do you think so? Yes! Don't fuck with it's me, ridiculous. mate! Because uh, I'm already on a tightrope. <laughs> Don't push me over. <laughs> Not before we're even recording. Are we recording, Jenko? Get this thing on. Because I can't stand this level of charisma. <laughs> not get and not record it. Karamo Brown, thank you very much for joining me on Under the Skin. I'm a tremendous fan of yours. Thank you. I'm a tremendous fan of yours. Uh oh. Yes, yes, yes. So, like, uh, I'm a fan of Queer Eye. I've watched pretty much all of them. Me and my wife, it's family viewing for mm-hmm. us. And already from our brief chat, I've seen you being uh, charming with my wife, Laura, there, and uh, my kids. Uh, the, the little bit of information that you uh, just said in passing was that you made the decision or the decision was made through you guys collectively with Queer Eye to make it uh, a positive as opposed to a cynical and condemning show. How yeah. did that come about? It, it, you know, the the five of us, when we got cast, they did a, like a big audition where they brought in, um, they auditioned thousands of people from around the world and they whittled it down to 200 to or 100. I, I, that number is debatable amongst all of us. And in that audition, that chemistry test, we were always the ones that wanted to give information and help where like some of the other guys would come out the room and we would say, what just happened in there? And they would say, I can't tell you, I'm in competition with you. Where the five of us would say, we would go in a room, we'd come out and we'd say, oh, what information do you want? This is what they just did in there. This is how you should practice. And I think that that led bled over into when we all got it because we immediately wanted something that was just really giving and just really just full of love. Like none of us wanted to be snarky. I remember we did the first guy and immediately we were all like, there was so much that you couldn't make fun of, quote unquote, but it was like, we just wanted to just shower him with love. We just that was the Harley to... Davidson guy, the first one. Yeah, it? yes, yes. Um, and we just want, we're like, no, you're, we just want to show you love. We just want to show you that you're okay and that you're, you're good and that you, you, life's going to be okay. And um, at first they were like, no, make a lot, you know, rip up the house and like do a lot of things, which was a throwback to the old show, which was a great show. 
but we've evolved. And um, I think because we stayed strong together that they were like, oh, this is working. And we have amazing producers, so I don't want to keep it all on us. You know, their uh-huh. editing and everything is phenomenal. But yeah. It's very encouraging, though, that that perspective was a success because yeah. I think that we assume often, oh, but you know, like say, for example, when people talk about social media, they go, oh, no, what people like on social media, they worked out the algorithm is negative information, mm-hmm. destructive information, gets spoken about more, gets uh, reposted more but queer eye is a sort of defiantly optimistic show sort of loving and like then a number of times i've been reduced to tears i feel like well like all right periphery of tears my wife actual tears i feel like actually you know i'm clinging on as best as i can in your company to the vestiges of what i've been programmed is conventional masculinity as i abandon all my beliefs about myself let it um, go let it go <laughs> leave that on the shore yeah. for god's sakes it's not helping me um so uh but I remember the one where that guy came out to his sort of stepmom. That yeah. one, that one was. I think I remember saying, "I don't think I've ever seen anything on television that's that yeah. powerful and beautiful." Yeah. We're, well, first of all, when you talk about like the fact that people assume that people only gravitate to more negativity because of reality television or social media, I think it does a disservice when that narrative gets passed on because human beings, we are multifaceted we are happy we are sad we're giving we're selfish we are so many different things and to assume that people only go to social media or reality television just for one side of themselves is is um damaging and also makes you think that the human condition is limited and it's not and i think that narrative is what screws us up and when you see that episode with that young man who finally felt comfortable because of the support he got from us of sharing his truth with his family, it was because we went in there in the same vein of you can be um, professional, you can be a party animal, you can be loving, and you can still have fears about the things that are unknown to you. And so we don't try to go in and just say, you're just this one thing because of what we see. You're, we're all multifaceted. And I think that we do ourselves more of a, a service when we realize, you know, you're not just one thing and it's okay. I, I want to appreciate all of you. I like that. So yeah. both socially and individually, we're multifaceted individuals, but you feel that certain um, media platforms and perhaps, you know, we could argue m- you know, maybe media in general mm-hmm. has a tendency, a bias yeah. towards the negative. Yeah. That's an interesting thing to observe. Well, but- it's because fear, when people make fear-based decisions, they're more likely to believe they're not the authority of their own life. They're they're more likely to believe someone else is the authority and thus you have to believe that authority. So if I push fear on you, you're going to assume that you can't make a decision for yourself or that one part of yourself is not good enough because I've told you that it's not. So now you're going to look to me for all the validation and all the direction you need. And I think when we can encourage people to make more love based decisions and to believe that they are not just one thing and they don't have to be fearful of any sides of them is when they're able to to see full growth, full love, full humanity, full everything. And I that's what I try to encourage, especially in my category on the show, being the one who fixes the emotional and the mental, is no, 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 no. No more fear-based decisions. No more believing that you're not the authority of your own life. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to to be appreciative of every side of yourself. And that's what people need to start understanding. It's very difficult, isn't it, Karamo, to invite people to 
break through those patterns. I was struck there what you by what you said about fear and that fear takes away personal autonomy. You see the world as an oppressive or some as the guiding force of your mm-hmm. life, and you just sort of cast around, not having any personal authority. I think that's a an important observation. A little more about the construction of the show. How yeah. early in the process did you five meet each other and like or get to? do castings together how sure. how how early was so that? they did um they did a year and a half of casting around the world and then they narrowed it down to that number and so we didn't meet each other until this three-day weekend where they brought that final 100 to 200 guys together um and ironically the five of us became close within an hour and a half of the first meeting so myself and bobby met first and we didn't separate then tan came over and he he didn't separate from us. Then Anthony came over, and then last was Jonathan. And it's ironic because none of us were even curious if we were in the same category and different categories. We just felt the desire of you want to help. You're here to have fun, and these other people who were great as well. I don't want to take away from them. We're here to compete. And mm. I believe in the law of abundance. There's enough work, enough love, enough happiness for all of us. And I think that in that moment, people were so scared that there wasn't a, enough for them that they started to feel like I have to take. And that's why we gravitated to each other because we were like, if we don't get this, someone else will get this. And this was for them. And then what is for me will come next. And whatever lessons I got from this, I'll use for the next thing. And we were all very adamant on that. And it wasn't until the second day that we realized that we were in five different categories and we had made it to the third round. And we were like, oh, my gosh, the, the four people I connected with in the first hour were still here and we're not competing we're we're all in different categories and i think that helped us get the show that's really lovely yeah. right because for all you knew at that point jonathan van could have been yeah could have been the culture guy and then it would have been like you know like do you go with the more serious one or the more funny one you know so yeah yeah, luckily yeah. he was here so, <laughs> so i had <laughs> no a job had to compete with yeah, that guy <laughs> good um so you like you say like that your category is culture but like how it seems at least to uh, a viewer is that you're there for psychotherapeutic uh, counseling type yeah. information what is your uh, background in that and how have you ended up in that Position. Yeah, sure. So the culture term is actually a throwback to the original show. So the original show, the gentleman who had my position was a Broadway star and an actor. And so it made sense that he introduced people to theater and movies and gave tickets away. And I'm a mental health expert. So I worked as a licensed social worker and a psychotherapist for almost 12 years before deciding to make the transition to television because that was always my childhood dream. And so for me, it was... I'm going to be the mental health expert here because I love what my brothers do. They are phenomenal hairdressers, phenomenal designers, phenomenal fashion people, phenomenal cook. But when you come into someone's home, if they haven't changed their pattern behavior in 10, 15, five years, that means there's something at their core, emotional core, mental core that's stopping them. And so great. Sure. We can really walk in and change that and then leave. But if we really want to see long lasting change, there needs to be somebody who is focusing directly on why haven't you done this? Because yes, we're the authorities in this situation of like, we are coming here to tell you what to do. 
uh, air quotations on the authorities because people are really the authorities of their own life. And we try to help people to make those decisions with us. But it's really figuring out, okay, if you haven't cut your hair in 20 years, that's not quote unquote normal behavior. Most people will get a haircut. Why did you not feel the need to get a haircut? And to start to dig there and then you start to realize, oh, there was a part in your life where you felt um, embarrassed, you felt unloved, you felt unsupported. And that's the reason that you just gave up on doing things that you once did. And so that's where my goal is. And that's what my point is. Yeah, that's brilliant. And so your evolution now from the show is obviously we're both on Luminary, the new (laughs) podcast platform. What are you going to what's your show on Luminary going to focus on? It's a call in show. So um, anybody from around the world can call in and dial a 1-800 number and speak directly to me to get advice on the issues, on the relationship issues they're having in their life. So whether it's the relationship with themselves or relationship with their mother, their father, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, whomever i'm there to support them focus primarily on relationships yeah i mean because that everything comes down to the relationship either you have with yourself or with someone else and i think at the core if you can figure that out then you'll be better something that my castmate anthony um who's one of the first guests on my podcast said that his therapist said to him which i've been taking and running with is that if it's hysterical it's historical and i just love that like if you're acting out of character, that's because some relationship with yourself or with someone else at some point in your life was damaged and now you're feeling triggered in another situation. And it's like, how can you do the work to follow those breadcrumbs back to that relationship so that you can do the work and then you can start to heal? And that's what I do on Queer Eye. I have four days to get to the emotional core, follow those breadcrumbs and say, okay, this is what the issue is. Now let's fix this. So now you can continue to cut your hair, continue to clean your house, continue to stop making your child be the boss, you know, things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that what another thing I enjoy about that show is it seems to create a loving, nurturing environment in which it feels like it's safe to change. Now, as you venture out into this new area, what do you think the challenges will be when dealing with some of the complexity around mental health? Obviously, with the experience you have in counseling and uh, and as a therapist, mm-hmm. you will know. Psychotherapist. Psychotherapist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like my my own experience of it as a recipient of yeah. psychotherapy is that, um, you know, it's really arduous, long journey, complicated. Yeah. How do you deal with the, uh, how do you deal with the challenge uh, of some of the complexity uh, of the people you deal with and the limitations of the media that you work in? Sure. So I always tell people when they call, the first thing is that there's a brick wall up for them. And all I'm doing is helping them to punch a big enough hole in that brick wall that they start to believe that they can tear down the rest of the wall themselves. And after they believe that, then it's helping them to realize that there are other resources in front of them or around them, counselors, therapists, um, friends, family members who are there to support them and helping them to understand that. So my job is never to solve their issues on one phone call because that'd be unrealistic. But if they can believe that they've now gotten the tools to see a brighter day, to see a better future for themselves, then 
that's where the first step starts to a journey of happiness and healthiness. And I think that's key. But also within that conversation, I give them solutions. So just in case they start to splatter, you know, um, bricks back into that hole I bust through, Mm. they now can in their own home say, oh, I don't want that little space to go. I might not be doing the work to break down the rest of this wall, but I don't want that space to go. So I'm going to use the tools that Karamo has given me so that way I can keep at least that little hole open. So that I can believe that I can change fully one day because that's all it's about. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's that's lovely because I suppose, or yeah, you know, I do sort of similar things in terms of trying to introduce people to like a twelve-step philosophy mm-hmm. that is most relevant around addiction, but has applications I think across mental health and is probably a useful tool for people uh, in you know in all areas of life because I think they're applicable to relationships and work, Agreed. anything that you get attached to or obsessed with. Um, but I'm aware that that it is like that what you can achieve is lim. I'm too aware of two things. One is there are limitations to what can be achieved, but also that in my own life there have been sort of just moments of kindness and love and positivity that have had an, an incredible impact on me and really changed the direction of my life. Yeah. How did you? Why? Have, how come you've like you? From what I know about you. You've got a pretty complicated life given that you're a father when you're pretty young. Yeah. Uh, you're obviously a, a gay man. Uh-huh. What's going on? Tell us what's going on, how we get to this situation. Uh, well, uh, I've got quite a lot of questions. Yeah, I mean, um, so immigrant parents, my parents are Jamaican and Cuban, and they gave me a name like Karamo, which set me off on a path of being challenged daily on like, you're different, you're not good enough. And all those things. Well, you're not always quite handsome and big. <laughs> now, who's the charmer? You're the charmer. You're the charmer. Um, you know, yeah, but that's perspective. Sometimes I think when you meet handsome big people, yeah. like, how insecure could you have been yeah, yeah, with your yeah. exotic name? Exactly. You know, it, you would think that I would be more confident, but when you're in a. I grew up in Texas, and so. Okay, that's not going to be easy. Yeah, exactly. So everyone around me was very much like. Uh, why are why are you so big? Why are you so dark? Why is your name like that? That was constantly the question of why was a trigger for me for a long time of there's something wrong with me. Because if you ask me why you're not seeing this, how special I am or the potential that I have, you're doubting me just from the get go because of these external features that or my name. And um, it was difficult. And that set me on a path of early addiction addiction oh. to porn to weed to then um how old are we here in this bit 16 16, 16. Porn and weed. oh my gosh yeah and it, I, I talk about i have a book out and i talk about that for me accessing weed was easy because my father was a rastafarian and he enjoyed smoking weed so i didn't have to go to the street corner in fact yeah so i didn't have to go to a corner i just went to his bedside and took the weed that i wanted and then we also had this big basketball in our freezer no meat big basketball of weed in there. So I would just bring friends over and take weed out and smoke weed all day. Um, And luckily it didn't affect my schoolwork because I was still smart enough to know like how to turn it off for the, the schoolwork, but it clouded me on every other, you know, choice I made. And then that, became a point where it wasn't enough. So then ecstasy became the drug of choice. And then, you know, three, four pills in, that wasn't enough. 
And then I met my match, which was my, you know, I always say you're in danger, girl, when you meet the drug that matches your personality. And cocaine for me was that. It was like, I am very um, structured, a little bit of OCD, type A personality. And cocaine only brought that out like 24-fold. I was the one planning parties, saying, let's go here, let's do this. Everything's organized, everything. I mean, I was on 10, 24-7. And, um... It, it got to the point where I was doing uh, an eight ball a day, two eight balls a day, um, which is an eighth of Coke for anybody who doesn't understand that. And but then I would try to take a day off to function and become super depressed and which then led to suicidal ideations and my health deteriorating because I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't eating. And the thing that saved my life was getting a stack of papers on my doorstep for back child support for a child. I didn't know she was the last girl I dated when I was 15 before I started letting people into my life regarding my sexuality. And um, she didn't tell me because we had both moved away. Um, and so she didn't know how to find me. This is 1995. So we didn't have the advent of technology and seeing the paperwork. Um, I went out and had one bender night and woke up the next day and was like, I can't do this if there's a kid out there that needs me and immediately moved back to Texas where my family was there to support me in getting sober. Meeting my child made me more sober because I didn't want him to ever see me high or drunk and then got back on this path of going back into social services. And um, eventually I adopted his little brother because he was in a situation was being removed from his mother's home. And so all of a sudden in a matter of two and a half years became a father of two. And uh, how old were you then? 27, 28. So yeah. that for you was the up until that point you'd lived a quite hedonistic, individualistic oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. lifestyle. Yeah. You were going for it, yeah. and it wasn't until you recognised that you had responsibility that you changed direction. Yeah. Well, you just said the key thing: recognizing you have responsibility. And the thing that I realize now is that I always had responsibility. The biggest responsibility to was to myself, but I never paid attention to the responsibility to myself because I had been so damaged by the nar negative narratives that were being put on me and the fact that I never did work on myself. So I didn't think I was responsible for myself. I always felt someone else was responsible for me. Someone else was responsible for me to be happy, for me to be taken care of. Um, and so you know, the me getting kids made me realize not only am I responsible for them, but I'm responsible for me to start yeah. living better. And that was key. I had a similar, I think, reaction to becoming a father much later in life. Yeah. But yeah, like it made me recognize you can't live in this sustained, infantilized state mm -hmm. of being like a man-child. Even by then, you know, I was clean from drugs and alcohol i was aware of my addiction to sex and was practicing a program around it i i feel that in the um, with my addiction the the condition migrates to different behaviors different substances i'll get obsessive about work i'll get obsessive yep. about what other people <laughs> yeah. think about me i want yep. to control things that are beyond my control and mm -hmm. um, becoming a father it made me realize that i precisely as you said i was responsible for them so i had to be responsible for me i had to be a man yep. in order to take care of a family so a lot of apparatus and changed in my life a lot of relationships immediately changed a lot of what was acceptable altered I mean, even pretty things that might seem quite superficial, like starting to do 
Brazilian jiu-jitsu is because I'd always avoided physical conflict, not enjoyed intimacy around men, not mm-hmm. liked situations where I felt inferior or belittled yeah. and was exposed to, you know. And I noticed like in the work, in your television work, that you talk about the importance of sort of owning your body and becoming grounded and the, the psychological component of that. I found yeah. that to be true for myself. Well, you do the work. I, I, I've, I've followed your career for a long time and it's always interesting to me. I'm like... Is Russell a secret therapist and we don't know about this? Because everything you've done from when you talk about the program, mentoring, you know, the jujitsu and that physicality of it all, all of that is is helping people to connect with their mind and body so that they can start to think critically about how to be better and to grow and to heal. And I think it's just phenomenal that first of all, you have your platform. So thank you so much for the work you're doing. It's, it's pretty exceptional. Oh, thank you yeah. for saying that. That's yeah. really, really beautiful. Thank you for creating a, a sort of, a, what I feel is important is a ways for men to be conversational with each other about their emotions. Yeah. Like now I don't have the, um, the sort of, obvious say racial or orientation issues and i'm not from fucking texas <laughs> no disrespect for anyone in texas but like um because i've been there in austin for example school and i bet i'd love dallas i bet yeah. i'd love all of it humans yeah. are humans but like uh <laughs> but that's one of the things we learn on queer eye regularly yeah, yeah, right? Those people are beautiful yeah i like that cop one i liked that episode yeah um you know like but like uh my feelings about sort of what uh, is required of me to be considered a man that are you know not feeling not good enough these are things that I've sort of worked through quite slowly, sort of acknowledging, oh, this is, I'm doing this, like, you know, I want to be famous so that people, like, it creates a sort of a bit of a barrier, it makes me feel elevated, makes me feel important, and then recognizing, oh, it's sort of, it can't work for you, it's, yeah. it's empty unless you find something real in it, unless you find something, and it, which always sort of comes down to, for me, can you be of service to others? It always comes down to what sort of spiritual principles have you found that yeah agreed i think that's that's what makes me feel good in the morning of knowing that i'm of service to others but within being of service to others it helps me to be more in service to myself and not in a selfish or narcissistic or egotistical way but in the way of like you know I, I tell people every statement should always start with I. And it's because I think a lot of times we start with they did this, mm. you did this, we are. And it should always start with I of how am I trying to better myself so that I can better others. And it, it, it just gives you a different perception and feeling in the world. I wake up happy. Wow. so often because <laughs> I, you know and it's just, it's just really good like there was a time when i used to wake up in you know like drug depressed stupors because i was just so aggravated about life and what wasn't happening what they did to me and what my dad did to me and it was just like i had to let it go and realize that i was responsible for my own self and my own happiness and that i could and that life is okay and that i can work to make it better even if i'm on a journey of not feeling good about who i am right now was it as simple as recognizing that you now had the responsibility like you know having found out that you were a father because for me what i have found is that i need a continued sustained program and practices in order to not sort of sink back into like i mostly wake up happy you know but like i sometimes feel that i will default to negative thought patterns, behavior patterns, if I don't work quite hard. Yeah, well, you said the key word, which I tell my audience all the time, which is practice. Mm. You have to practice. Like if you've practiced 
telling yourself negative things that your body's not good enough, mm-hmm. that you're not going to ever get that job. You've practiced that for 10 years, five years, 20 years. You have to practice every morning this a different and opposite behavior so that way you can change the life you want. And people think that it's some self-help quick one, two, I'm, I'm healed. And that's not it is. The reason I wake up happy is because before I go to bed, I have a routine of practicing. So for me, um, instead of getting on my phone before I go to sleep and checking yeah. my phone, the time that I would have devoted to that, I put down my phone and I, I literally put it under my bed because I'm tempted by it. And so, <laughs> so I can't, you know, I'm sitting on it. It's underneath there. And then I, um, I practice telling myself that I'm good enough, that I'm perfectly designed, that I'm going to have the life I want, that, you know, the thing that I assumed was a bad thing that happened to me during that day was actually a lesson I needed so that I could propel myself to the success that I want in some other area. I practice telling myself that. And I do it out loud so that the other people around me, like my sons, my partner, can hear me so that they can start practicing it. Ooh. Where'd you learn them techniques? Um, you know, I just picking it up from other leaders like yourself and, you know, through training. The funny part is I have this um, not funny, but uh, the thing I'm thankful for is I have training from school on this. But, you know, having training and practical real life experience are two different things. But I also have the practical real life experience of having every challenge you can imagine, you know, from domestic violence. You know, I grew up in a household where my father used to beat my mother every day. And then I then picked up the behavior because no one ever said to me, I knew better than to hit a woman. But no one ever said to me, well, if you're gay and you end up dating a guy, you know, you can't hit him. And so domestic violence is really big in the LGBT community, but it's ah, never talked about. Really? It's one, the rates are higher than in, in heterosexual couples. I've never Be- heard that either. Yeah. yeah because yeah. if you think about it, if I'm told every day in this sort of toxic masculinity that it's okay for two men to duke it out and I'm a man falling in love with another man and I've already been have a predisposition to seeing people, my father beat my mother. I know it's not okay for me to hit a woman. But you're a man. You're the same size as me. So I'm going to knock you out. And that was my my point of view. So I dealt with domestic violence. I dealt with drugs. I dealt with issues of colorism, a feeling like my skin tone wasn't enough because my grandmother used to tell me not to go in the sun and darken up my her family anymore. And she's an authority to me. And she's telling me not to darken up her family anymore because it would take away my opportunities. I mean, I I can go down the list of challenges that I've had. Mm, And therefore... I know that I got to practice every day because I have the training from college, but also I've been through all this shit. (laughs) And so I'm like, come on, if I can do it and I can fix it, you can fix whatever you're going through. Yeah, you've got a lot of uh, valuable and powerful experience yeah. there. I'm a bit curious. This might seem a bit pure and childish, so forgive me. No. So when you was uh, like 15, you were having heterosexual relationships. What, at that point, did you already feel that you would rather have sex with men or not? And also, do you think that there is a fluidity to sexuality? How like how rigid is uh, your own sexuality? I, 
probably I've never asked anyone that question before, but I suppose you are on a program called Queer, Queer Eye. Eye for the <laughs> yeah. I've never gone to a heterosexual person. Hey, come on, <laughs> you must be a bit gay. Yeah. So but you know what? We should start asking more men that because I think we we limit men's curiosity not just in sexuality but in all areas when we don't allow them to be given the same question that we would ask someone who's a woman or who's um, whose gender or sexual expression is different than our own. And to let you know, for me, um, I always knew that I wanted to have intimate relationships with men. It it was from five, six years old on playgrounds when a girl would touch my hand, I didn't have the same flutter in my heart and my stomach that I did when a young boy would touch my hand. But I never acted on it because of society, you know, being a Jamaican Cuban household, I already knew from the music by itself, you know, there were songs on in the early 90s from artists like Buju Bantan that said, you know, kill a gay man and shoot him dead. That was played in my house regularly as just pop culture, you know, songs. And so here I am. I'm like, uh, okay, I'm never going to tell any of you guys. Um, And so when I finally had the experience of having sex with, you know, my son's mother, I chose someone that, first of all, was a best friend and that I already had an intimate connection with through our friendship because I wanted to feel safe in exploring that and I actually told her so she was already aware that I was having desires for men but being 15 she didn't really put two and two together she was just like okay we spent all of our time together I trust you we're gonna lose our virginity together that's fine and it lasted for about three minutes and I was like I don't ever want to do that again please that's not fun to me I don't know what that is but that's not okay with me and this is not to vagina shame you know because I think too many gay men do that where they they say gross vaginas are gross not that at all it was just for me I knew that I didn't have the connection to you know our sexual organs touching like I wanted to have and um, I immediately said we're done you know fortunately that you know you know, we had a child from it. But as I went through college, there was one other girl that I then decided, well, you know, we have an intimate connection as well. I feel good about this. Maybe we should try this again. I'm now living as a gay man, but, you know, I I feel attracted to you and I feel like I want to kiss you and hold you. And we had sex again. And I, I just was like, Again, it, my sex, our sexual organs are not working the same way it feels when I'm with someone of the same sex. And I do believe there is a fluidity to most people. And I think that if they allow themselves to have conversations about what they're desiring in a moment based on intimacy and not just the sexual organs, I think they would find themselves exploring and being curious more often, just like me. It wasn't about like, okay, you're a woman, I'm a man. It was about, I feel intimately connected to you. So let's try to see what could happen here. And um, my castmate, he's more Anthony. He's more, he identifies as more fluid. He's dated men, he's dated women. um, And he hates being called gay because he's like, I don't identify with the term gay gay where you have Jonathan and I who are just very much like no I'm okay with being gay like I might have intimate connections with women but I I know that that doesn't mean that there needs to be a sexual component to that intimacy where did the negative domestic programming that you received finally become undone and make you able to embrace the truth of who you are Um, it was the minute that I decided that I was not going to be afraid of my father anymore. 
I think that was the key thing. I made a conscious decision to not be afraid of him in our house. Again, fear-based decisions, love-based decisions. It's, it's, it, it affects all of us. I decided that I lived in a household where my mom, my sisters were all afraid of this big man who came in and would, he spoke, we got quiet. He did something. And he was also very charismatic, which was also very confusing because oh, yeah. he could, he could just charm you and love you. But then in a flip moment, he could be the scariest person you ever see. And I made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to be afraid of him. And in that decision, that meant I could say whatever I wanted to say. I could express whatever I wanted to express um, because I wasn't afraid of you. But the only reason I was able to get to that fair based decision is because at the age of 14, 15, I had found a tribe of people who are still my friends today, who still live around the corner from me. We've we've traveled together um, like a true tribe. And they gave me courage that I couldn't find in myself to not be fearful because I knew if I lost his love or what I perceived his love was, I knew that I had love from them and that I had love for myself. And so all of those played into me saying, this is who I am and I'm okay with it. So these were just your mates that were your friends that you grew up with. Yeah. And also, how did that... Uh, that So once you decided not to be afraid of your father, is your father alive? He is. Do you have a relationship with him now? I don't. Yeah, we. I've been reaching out, trying to bridge the relationship. I just talked about this on my podcast um, because we have an episode about family and sexuality. And actually, I wrote him a letter, a three-page letter, just one day while shooting Queer Eye. And just was like, just rampantly saying, I forgive you. Mm. Um, because you're on your journey of growth. I'm not expecting you to know it all. I'm not expecting you to um, reconcile your relationship with religion and your relationship with me right now. But I want to give you more information. I also want to give you an open door to know that I'm open to you having that growth and I'm not going to rush that growth because I think that's a big thing. We rush people's growth because we want it on our timeline. And so we assume you have to get to where I am now. I think it's a big disservice that LGBT people do in why I don't subscribe to this whole notion of coming out. I think it's about letting people into your life because when you let people into your life, you have the power and you don't feel like they have the power to reject or accept you. The only person who needs to accept you is yourself. And I think that um, in letting people in, you can allow other people to go on their journey of growth and healing and understanding because so often we say, I've been on a journey for 15 years in my mind, 16, 20 years of this is who I am. And then one day I am supposed to come out to you and you're supposed to be exactly where I am on my journey. And that's just not realistic you know unless they've been doing the work before if you're blindsided by your child who's lived one way then of course you're going to have some adverse reaction and this is not excusing malicious or disgusting behavior but it's saying we have to be more tolerable and respectful of other people's journey as well so i told my father that i was okay with his journey and when he's ready to ask more questions to get to know me more i'm open to it You've sent that letter. Yeah, and he wrote me back about a, two weeks ago, and um, he's not ready. And um, but he was thankful that I acknowledged that he can be on his own journey, and that I'm not rushing him to be on that journey. And who knows? It might be on his deathbed that he'll say, "Oh, I get it now, and I'm okay with the man who you are." And if not, it's all right because I forgive myself and I've forgiven him. That's good. Do yeah. you feel that that wound is? anywhere because i have like um 
you know, for me, like the journey, hey, Jenga, while you're up, do you mind bringing that blind down a little bit just because the sun's just moving and there's enough dazzling charisma across <laughs> across the table? Yeah. And anyway, do you yeah. need anything? No, the crazy part is part of talking to you, you remind me of my goddamn dad. Good, because I am <laughs> like charismatic, uh, brute of yeah, a Rastafarian exactly. man. It's the beard, the hair, the way you intensely look at me, the smile. All of it is very. It's very. It's been freaking me out this entire time. No way. Yeah, this I, entire time. For some reason, I'm really into that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's revealing yeah. about <laughs> about my nature. Exactly. <laughs> I'm enjoying that comparison, even though you've described him as a, a homophobe <laughs> and a domestic abuser. He's also a good guy in many yeah, areas. Yeah, that's He's weird, also a good isn't guy. it? I'm recognizing in my own life that there is a kind of ambivalence to things that yeah. I am capable of being both sincere and loving and open-minded but also selfish yeah. and uh, self-interest mostly selfish into- intolerant not in a social way I'm pr- I've always been alright with that kind of thing please God as far as I'm aware but I mean yeah. intolerant of my wife's like no oh, why'd you do that for you yeah. know like so you know, I, I, we, I feel that we have to have a degree of ease with the ambivalence of things. But like, for me, my my journey, like, I, I feel that um, it's t- like it doesn't seem so severe. Like, it's not severe. I'm not a African American man growing up in Texas with a Rastafarian father. That's some vivid shit. Yeah. Like, but like, it take like you know, I carry. Like I carry a lot. It takes me like almost it's a daily process for me to mm-hmm. like to. I, I'm careful of this because I know my mum and dad don't like it when I say stuff like this. Yeah. But like I didn't grow up around my dad. I had a sort of a quite a sporadic relationship. With him. I adored him, admired him, and we have a good relationship now, a really good relationship. But I felt a lot of anger around that. And my mum, who couldn't be more adoring, I don't have brothers and sisters, you know. Like, but like she was sick a lot when I was a kid, so I had to like live with other people and stuff like that. And sometimes that didn't go well for me, mm-hmm. you know. Like, and so I had like, and so even as a forty-three-year-old man, even as a father, I can still inhabit those feelings or feel inhabited by those feelings. You seem to. Uh, you know, when you're younger than me, I've checked on the sheet. You seem to, you seem to be doing better in the competition to be more self-actualized yeah. than positive. Uh-huh. So how do you, you know, like, I recognize that what you're saying is entirely true, that you have to forgive your father and allow him to be on yeah. his own journey. And I also agree with you that, that we should amplify that tendency, although I obviously can't speak on behalf of many of the communities or either of the communities that you speak on behalf of, but I reckon that tolerance to other people's intolerance is an obvious way of us finding cons- uh, consolidation together mm-hmm. yeah. um conciliation reconciliation yeah. um but like uh do you not feel some pain about that with your father like you know like a like someone that has sort of like because i feel like i you know like we are fathers now yeah. when i think of that little girl them little girls down there my job is i want to create a world for them where they think they're good enough that they get the opportunities they should that when they fall down when life inevitably hurts them that i'm there for them you know what yeah. i mean i'm like you know like if uh, the idea that someday in the future my daughter would go, yeah, my father, I was scared of him. He didn't accept me for who yeah. I truly... I just sort of think, well, that's my priority in life above all else is to be what I need to be for them. Yeah. So, like... Well, the first thing is you have to do is... I First of all, I hear every time you talk and you're open and transparent about your story, I mean, you break down 
this sort of toxic masculinity in such a way, a very casual way, which I just applaud you on. Because even being able to talk about the the, the fear or the anxiety that you had growing up with your father not being in your mother um, being sick. I mean, all of that allows other men who look up to you to say, it's okay for me to acknowledge it. And that's the first key in growing and healing. And so when I think about my own father, I do feel very comfortable in knowing that I've acknowledged what happened and that I'm on my journey of healing. And I would not be human if I didn't say that there are days when you know, something will trigger me again, going back to that statement I said earlier, if it's hysterical, it's historical where I will find myself feeling wounded or hurt. And that's when I do what I did when I was younger of acknowledging it out loud, saying quickly, I'm feeling hurt in this moment because I reminded I'm reminded of how I felt around my father or around the way my father treated me. And when you don't hold things in your head, you don't keep them buried and locked away in some secret room in your brain. You're able to open it up and it's no longer something that's going to haunt you and to burden you and to keep you down. And so I do that constantly. If I'm not feeling good, I say it out loud. We have a propensity as human beings when people ask us because we've been trained by the media that your emotions are a burden to other people. So you say constantly, oh, I'm okay when asked how you're doing instead of saying, "Um, no, I'm not okay. And uh, I just need to acknowledge that doesn't mean that I'm expecting you to solve my problems, but I need to say it out loud so that way I can acknowledge it and then begin the journey to heal myself. You know, I think about mental health and physical health. When we think about physical health, we will tell every single person that we started a new diet, that we're going to the gym, that we want to work out, buddy, that we are doing swimming now, anything. (laughs) But when you are on a journey of mental health and um, you won't tell anyone, you won't acknowledge the anxiety you're going through. You won't acknowledge your sadness. You'll acknowledge happiness because we believe and been trained that that's what other people want to hear. But there is deeper connections in being honest about all of your emotions. And so for me, when I acknowledge it and say it out loud, yes, I'm feeling triggered right now because of something that happened my father I say it so that other people know they're not alone in their feelings but then also by saying it I'm not alone anymore I'm not it's not holding me back I'm okay I'm talking about my mental health which then says oh when I get home tonight I need to practice a little harder because I don't know why that popped up but it did so now practice instead of 30 minutes practicing I'm going to take an hour and practice and talk about tell myself that I'm okay heal from this forgive my father I do it all over again it's a continuous thing And there's one other thing that you said that I just want to remind you of. And um, I told myself I'm not going to come in here and do any of my (laughs) what I do. Don't worry, because I have a, a tendency to do this on other people's shows. So I'm not going to do it. But I will say to you is I heard a fear based decision being made that's dictating your life of I don't ever want my daughters, those two little sweet girls to feel like dad was not who he built himself to be up in his mind. And I think you have to let go of that thought and idea because no matter what your intentions are, their experience is always going to be different from yours. And there will be a point where they're going to say, dad was great, but dad was also an asshole. No, Sorry to tell you. And I think you should start to prepare yourself because it sounds as if you're holding a lot on to the fact of healing yourself and your past through changing the relationship you have with your daughters and that's okay to do 
it's it's okay to change and break patterns. But if you hold yourself to a standard that is higher than someone else's experience, then you're always going to be the only one that's going to be disappointed. Oh my God, that was good advice. So just let that go. Let that go. You know, like um, I did a podcast with Gabor Mate. Do you know that guy? He's like yeah. an addiction. I mean, he's yeah, he's a beautiful guy. And I, I told him this story about like when Mabel, who you met, mm-hmm. like who you may have noticed, was playing with a lighter <laughs> <laughs> when you arrived at the house. Part of that is because like. I like, you know, like there was a time, like, so when I was chatting to Gabor Mate, who's mm-hmm. an amazing guy, like she would, um, like if she asked for chocolate or whatever, I go, mm, look, listen, Mabel, you probably shouldn't have chocolate because it's like, and she goes, I want chocolate. I go, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, because her mum, like, is much more like sort of stable, regimented, disciplined, yeah. all those kind of things. And Gabor Mate goes, you can't, like, he said the same thing as you, so this is obviously true. Like, that, like he goes, that you are trying to work through your own childhood anxieties through your child by not, like, you think that you can't allow them to cry or suffer mm-hmm. in any way. That's an unrealistic expectation, and you'll end up doing them a disservice by letting them play with lighters, giving them chocolate <laughs> in the middle of the night. Oh my God. Yeah, no, thank you for taking the risk. There was a moment in that where I thought, what I'm going to do now is my best Jamaican accent. <laughs> so Karamo thinks I am his father. <laughs> Chide him with some patois slang. Some patois slang. I've been okay with it. You're actually in the UK, so it wouldn't have been too far off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That connection. Can I give you something else? God, all right, bloody hell. Just something else. I'll take it. Of course. Actually, I tell you what, yeah, I I will because I respect you and I think you're authentic what you do. And when I see you do that uh, stuff on Queer Eye, I think that it ain't easy in those kind of environments to be sincere and authentic and loving. And I feel like, as you have said, the success of that show is built on the sort of organic and beautiful chemistry i know how television works i yeah. know there's an editorial process i know there's brilliant producers that work on your show of but like that there is an authenticity and, and lovingness to the way love is the main thing i think you Always. make them people feel loved yes and it's uh, very very beautiful to watch so yes yeah. i will accept your free expert Perfect. advice the well i i think of you so very highly honestly i just watch you i've watched your career for many years before this conversation and um something that i've heard you say in this interview alone and I've heard you say in other ones because I've listened to your podcast is you compare yourself and if I can leave you with something of saying comparison is the thief of joy so you're robbing yourself of more beautiful experiences than you're already having and I heard you say it with your wife right here casually not disrespectful but you said you know well she's the more stern one and more stable one by comparing yourself and saying that she's more of this it takes away your ability to recognize those great qualities in yourself and also your ability to grow. And I'm not saying that you're stuck or stagnant. Never want to like assume that. But I don't want you to continue to compare yourself to someone else or how someone else acts because what you're doing and what I witness, even from this small interaction between your wife, you and your daughter, and we're talking about that with the lighter, you did something that was so very special. You came down to her level and you spoke to her in such a mature and loving way, which I think a lot of times adults don't do because we assume that children don't have the brain capacity to understand or to be respected. And there's something about a father getting down to their eye level of their daughter and saying, I see what you're doing and I'm going to have a conversation with you about it. And 
I don't want you to compare yourself to what your wife is doing because you're doing your own exceptional things, whether you're realizing it or not. But you're taking away from that by saying she's more stable or she's more this. And I don't want you to do that. Cromer Brown, you beautiful bastard. <laughs> you're queer eyeing me on my own fucking podcast. Not at queer-eyeing all. Queer eyeing me to the <laughs> precipice of tears with your <laughs> sheer beauty. I tell you, like I tell you where a lot of this comes uh, from. I'll give you some like not that like I'm not trying to justify my negative patterns and thereby recommit to them. Yeah. But like I just want to like give you some context for that. One thing is that, you know, as a twelve step program guy, I, I I'm continually looking out for defective behaviours, negative behaviours. Mm-hmm. behaviors that might lead me back to uh you know substance misuse you know like i don't like watch porn i don't uh, objectify people that i'm sexually attracted to until this interview yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then uh, like so i'm sort of vigilant about negative behaviors and like uh, in my therapist actually like he's very like he gives me like a, we use british soccer type references yellow cards and red cards for speaking negatively about myself mm-hmm. but the other thing right so there's that is that i'm continually trying to look out for oh my god how would i destroy my life through my addictive behaviors i sort of do experience quite a lot of fear to tell you the truth yeah um and the other thing is that i've been famous for a while so i've no i i'm sort of vigilant for what is it like that I've said that's going to be repackaged? And I did an interview a little while ago in which I said, like, uh, you know, like to give almost to give props to Laura. I said, like, you know, she does much more of the practical stuff. And it's sort of in my country where I'm more famous. It led to like lots of like discussion shows. Them saying like, um, Russell Brand says he doesn't change diapers. Russell Brand, mm. you know, like sexist or yeah. this. And I thought, oh my God, I'm not sexy. I'm not like setting it up as this is the way other people should live. It, this just happens to be the dynamic in our home yeah. you know so yeah that's what's happened i've been there's the conditioning influences i would say in making that comparative statement is which i am going to take your advice i'm not saying i don't yeah, want yeah, your advice i want it it's great you're, you're correct thank you um but like is like you know one is like this i've developed a kind of vigilance around oh god what are people going to say is this going to get extracted and used against me and the other one is because i know that in the past you know any addict like that involves you know even when you've spoke about your previous self it like you have this image of yourself of like you know i did these things and like even i was you know very interested when you talked about like domestic violence i mean oh my god what's this man like in relationships what was he like in relationships where he's having physical fights and stuff i'm interested in that but sometimes i think in my case the owning of my own negativity can bleed into a sort of a self-damning needing approval from the outside and that kind of stuff so you're basically right yeah but that started for you before the addiction yeah, well, yeah. I would say you're right because I say that the roots of my addiction are probably in codependency and enmeshment with my mother. So, like, you know, that's there long before I'm picking up substance and then food and then sort of pornography. Those yeah. things are there. You know, I'm 15, 16 by the time drugs are part of the, the equation. Same, 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 same. And also, I, I, I don't think that behavior, you said, you know, acknowledging the negative behavior. I don't, I don't like to label things negative or not. I like to say that that's just a part of your personality that you can grow from. And I think that when we stop thinking of things as positive or negative and start looking at every decision we make as an ability to grow, I think it takes some of that pressure that we all have on ourselves because you know a lot of things you said is like i have to protect myself because of the way media picks up i'm protecting i'm protecting and so that means part part of protection 
is pressure, fear. All of that is all enabled and rounded to one. And so I don't want to ever put that on you of making you feel like you have to protect yourself or that something you did is negative. I just want you to see in that that you are so amazing and you have so many great qualities, things that you know of and things that I think there's probably even more that you're fearful to say because you have to protect yourself because of how it's going to be perceived or how other people will react to it, which my goal and my hope for you is that you would be able to let that go at some point. My God, yeah, you're a good therapist. I'd like to book an hour a week <laughs> of this stuff. Thank you very you're much. Welcome. That's really very generous you're of you welcome. and very beautifully put in it. And I understand it. Thank you. Yeah. Now, let's return to you because remember, yes, this is about, yes. this is about you. You're, yes, there's you're me, a me, guest me. on a podcast. Yes, yes, yes. Don't make some mad power grab through the use of therapy, through the use of kindness and piercing brown eyes. Don't weaponize it. Don't weaponize your God given gifts. <laughs> <laughs> so um i want to these are a couple of the other things i want to talk about what are sure. you like in your uh like you're in a relationship now are you, you live with someone yeah we're we've been engaged now for um a year mm-hmm. on may 9th we've been together for thank you nine years um yeah, yeah. Oh, it took so long oh yeah it was illegal yeah it was illegal <laughs> yeah i always tell people that i'm like it was illegal for a while um but um i am i am so i've never been single which is part of also oh. my my work that I have to do. Um, I literally got into a relationship with my best friend, her, and we weren't in a relationship, but it was some type of form of intimacy happening to get right into the first guy I ever dated, was with him through high school, to the first guy I was with him in college, stayed with him, to another guy, then moved to California after college, met a guy, and that's the one where we got heavy into drugs, and that was really codependent because we were whatever, and then I left him to then pick up a relationship with children that I then moved in immediately and then didn't wasn't with anyone intimate so your during that kids time. lived with you as soon as you found out about them it, it took about four months before Lucky they hell. moved in yeah so it was very much like oh I, I'm used to somebody here I did it for the right reasons but now I can also reflect and realize like okay you're not great you, at being alone yeah and so that's what I work on a lot of like I took my first trip ever overseas to Barcelona by myself and it was miserable (laughs) (laughs) it was the worst worst thing ever (laughs) I was like I I realized that I I can engage with people when I feel the comfort of having someone else that I know is always there for me and that's something I'm constantly working on of like okay I can just engage without knowing that like oh I I like you know you're already here in my corner. I already know you. I can trust you. So yeah. that safety blanket. Um, Where was that come from? Um, I think it comes from. I well, I don't think. I know where it comes from. The relationship with my mother and father of um, feeling like when my father was not the good guy, when he was the the quote unquote bad guy that was still on his journey of healing and growth that. I always knew that no matter what, my mom was there to hold my hand and to protect me so I could be tough and I could be safe and I can be gregarious, but she was always there. And um, so I took that into each of my relationships where it was like, I want someone there that's always going to hold my hand, even if they're behind me um, or beside me. So that way um, I can go out in the world. You know, it's sort of like being tethered to a boat 
And even though I'm out swimming in the middle of the ocean, I know that this boat is tethered to me. I'm not going anywhere. And if it starts moving, I'm moving as well. And that is safe. And so now I'm trying to take more experiences where I jump into the ocean without a tether. And um, it's it's bloody miserable in Barcelona. (laughs) Miserable. miserable. trip to Catalonia. Yeah, it was miserable. I spent a week and a half there and it was like on the beach and I'm like... I don't, I don't, who am I going to talk to? I I was like, I don't have, you know, getting to eating by myself. I mean, it it just, I realized I was afraid to be alone. I was afraid to be by myself and with my own thoughts. I'm getting a a lot better because I practice it more and more now. And so in my relationship, um, there's still a large part of that. So when I'm home, I'm so uber focused on my partner. I'm so uber focused on my kids. It's like, we're getting around the the table we're eating dinner together we're around the tv together there's always people around me and so um i've been finding times to make sure they all are gone from the house where i'm just alone for extended period of time so that i can feel more and more comfortable about who i'm just am alone yeah that otherwise we exist only in relationship yeah what's your feelings about god mate um i believe in god yeah me too. um i don't believe that god is a male I think that's <laughs> yeah, that'd you know, be quite limiting for yeah. an omnipotent, omnipresent force. Exactly, of all that you're just a guy, and also I think it's it's it just is very sexist. I mean, yeah, everything sexist. in nature says that the female can create and births and does, but yet the person that or the entity that created is a male that we've never seen anything in nature. But I, I think this this presence is all beings and all things, and. Um, you know, so I do believe in God, and I I think it's my son is an atheist. He does not believe in God. Is this the lad that's twenty two? Twenty two, yeah. And um, it's a big conflict for half the family because they're like, you should believe in God. And for me, I'm like, you're on your journey. You know, you find your spirituality, you find whatever it is that's going to work for you, and I'm going to love you through that. Who's yeah. the force for you should believe in God? Your mom, or who's the? Where's that coming from? My father. You know, the Rastafarian, he read the Bible morning, noon, and night. That's a big piece of him. And so, I mean, that's why I say, like, he gave us such great tools and such greatness, even in the the perceived destruction. I mean, he was just a I, I wrote about him in my book, and people are always like, I thought he was going to be a villain. And I'm like, well, none of us are truly villains. No. We, we have good moments, we have bad moments, and that's what he was. And so he gave me a desire. I mean, in my household, he always referred to God one day as he, one day as she. And the first time I ever heard the term them was from my father. He was praying and he was like, dear them, I believe that, you know, I can be better. And I was like, them? What? Did you just say that God is more than one? I was, and it, I, those concepts were just subconsciously thrown at me through by him. So Yeah, so it's weird, isn't it? He's on a mad spiritual journey. He's got some incredible beliefs. But... I feel like the function of, I don't know, let's see, tell me what you think. Mm-hmm. I feel like the function of religion is to get yourself sort of in line with life, not a way of you evaluating, judging, and possibly condemning other people. I Agreed. don't feel like there's room for that. Agreed. Uh, the, the 
in all religious texts, because I, I study religious texts since I was younger, because as being a gay man, being also a black man, where religion has been used to both justify slavery and also justify condemning me as a gay man, I have to study religion so I can be able to articulate and fight against religious leaders who use religion to damn or to preach hate. And what you realize in all texts, at the core of every organized religion, when they talk about God, God is always love and growth and birth and of all these things that are pure and loving. It is religious leaders who use text or to have people make these fear-based decisions because that's how you're going to gain more of a following, more money. You're going to gain everything you want when people are afraid and they're going to be like, well, take it so that I can be safe. Take it. I, I need you to be keep me safe. So take my money, take whatever you want. Um, but what I try to encourage people, especially, is remember, especially when talking about religion, that in no other text would you ever allow someone to divorce um, context from a verse. Yet in organized religion, we allow it always. So we'll let a pastor or a you know priest get in front of people and say one line in a chapter and say, this is what that means. The dog is green. And we're like, you have to kill your dog because your dog's not green. I mean, the pastor said the dog is green. So if your dog is brown or spotted, there's a problem. When you realize that if the rest of it, the context of the entire verse or chapter, there's there's more to it. Yes. And um, when you read, like, you know, I tell people, young LGBT people all the time who want to have a relationship with God or want to have a relationship with organized religion, you know, there's uh, the statement about Sodom and Gomorrah. And we hear that all the time that that's that's where the gays went and they were burning in hell because, you know, they were doing gay stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and like that line is divorced from the rest of the context of the verse. And when you read the rest of the verse, you realize that that actually is about pedophilia and about uh-huh. grown men who were having raping young boys. It has nothing to do with consensual relationships between adult men or adult women or um, anyone who's adult and consenting. It was about this abuse of power to harm a child because that child was two, three, four and did not have the capacity to say, yes, this is what I want or what I don't want. Mm-hmm. But yet this term is used to sort of damn gay people. And when you're able to understand the context of the verse, then you can have more power in helping other people grow and be educated. Yes, I, that's uh, really well put, Karamo. Like, Thank what you. I feel is that a lot of uh, religious ideologies, ultimately, or ideologies in general, become about power. Yeah. You know, the, like the ideology of a nation can be a positive thing if it's like oh, we're all together under one flag. But when it starts to be, oh, these people are more together. These people are less important. These people, and, and like, so it's not only a problem that's found within religion it's as soon as an ideology is asserted it, people use it to create hierarchies to create d- dominant class and dominated classes yeah. of people and um, yeah my sense is that if there is no room in any spiritual practice for anything other than love now like suppose what people think is that oh there needs to be some martial element to life we need to protect ourselves from imagined barbarians or possibly people would argue real barbarians is there Mm -hmm. a real threat but 
How relevant is that in the lives of ordinary people? It's certainly not as relevant as a sort of a principle like, you know, accept and love one another, do as you will be done by stuff that's throughout the Bible. One of the things I always um, am curious about is that, like, in, like that sort of the. Christ's teachings are so embedded with ideas of economic fairness, mm-hmm. of love and sharing, and the or, or, that's seldom used. You know, like the, the, one of the first things that, like, the, one of the most relevant things I would think about Christianity is a sense of fairness, justice, sharing, looking after one another, help the poor, do not judge sex workers. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah. these things are sort of explicitly in there and extracted uh, in place of sort of yeah difficult to locate ideas around ad- the sexuality of consenting adults yeah. and it seems yeah that a society uses it to enforce its preferences as opposed to it being originally present in of course religion. i mean to go to your original thought i think that there this whole idea that we think that there's these barbaric people who are going to attack us and kill us is why we need these hierarchies um is absolutely absurd um i think you know, people who make bad decisions and or perceive bad decisions or who hurt other people, it's from a lack of education. A lack of education causes fear. Fear causes ignorance. Ignorance causes you to react in a way that's going to be harmful to other people. And I think that if religion could get back to a place of helping to educate instead of create this fear-mongering space, then we'd be better because most people's introduction to the rest of the world is through organized religion, especially here in the States, from my experience. When you go to the South, when you come here, and especially in a lot of impoverished neighborhoods or lower economic neighborhoods, their first experience to the rest of the world is through someone in a pulpit telling them what the rest of the world is like. So if I'm, you've never went beyond your four walls and I say, the gays are going to kill your kids and touch them. Of course, you're like, oh my gosh, The gays are going to kill my kids. It was the same thing kings and queens did when people were living in their their, you know, their little castles and in their fort. They would say, if you go outside of these walls, you know, there's going to be somebody who's going to hurt you. They're going to rape your wife. They're going to, you know, harm your children. And then once we went out that wall, we were like, oh, before you hurt me, I'm going to kill you. And now we have this barbaric behavior just happening because of fear. And so, again, you know, I don't want to overstress this, but. We really got to teach people how to make fear-based, not make fear-based decisions, make love-based decisions, and really think critically about when they're making fear-based decisions or when they're in environments that are teaching them to make fear-based decisions, like organized religion that's taught by someone who is making them feel like fear-based decisions going to keep them healthy when it mm. doesn't. Yeah, yeah, I feel you. The other thing is that it is there is a natural impulse or tendency in human beings to be tribal, to feel connections to the people that are most immediately around them. But there's no reason that those tribes need to be classified and stratified along the lines of some of the preferences that we've been discussing. And that thing yeah. you said about the citadel or the castle or the bounded community, I feel that that has... Sometimes I feel that when something exists on a sociological level, it has, uh, what do I want to say, precedence or possibly origin in a sort of s- a certain personal and psychological truth i.e. there's the idea that if you 
go outside the confines of your understanding of the world that there is danger if you start to try different things if you look at different ideas stay um, Herman Melville your American writer in Moby Dick talks beautifully about the difference between the land and the ocean how safe we are on the land on some green Mm. Tahiti of comfort contrast this with the terrors of the ocean where everything is eating each other the fear the fear you know so it's all sometimes I feel that yeah that we are sometimes, you know, you've talked before about our willingness to participate in fear-based decisions, that we sometimes, you know, there's a tendency in human beings to allow a certain kind of confinement, to allow ourselves to be inhibited, uh, an unwillingness to recognize, my God, I might not be who I thought I was. The things that I believe to be true about myself, I think I I can let go of that. I can let go of that. I can become this, you know, to get, break out of the fortress of our own belief systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're so right. And people need to start doing that more. They need to start exploring and being more curious about life. And it, it's it's easier said than done because you've been tr- most of us have been trained that after a certain point in life, usually once you start getting to high school or I guess in the UK, it's primary school. Secondary school secondary is school. when they're like, you're about 11, 12. Yeah, 11, 12. Then it's all of a sudden curiosity is no longer um, encouraged. It's no longer something that we highlight. And so what happens is that you're now going into formation and doing what everyone else is doing and that's where those blinders come on and you become fearful of everything else that's out there it's you know it's the land is safe everything out there is not and i think that stops us and so like i, I encourage people to be just as curious now as adults as they were when they were children because that's where real growth happens that's where real love happens that's where where everything happens in curiosity and that's what we try to do on the show when we're on queer eye we're exposing them to things that they were curious about but were fearful to go after. Yeah. And so we say, oh, you you know, Can says, try this pants. And they're like, <laughs> I can't try that pant. That pant is not for me. You know, like, <laughs> I've been curious about it, but I can't do that, you know? <laughs> like, you haven't lived until you put on some leather pants. You know, I, I put on some the other day, and I was like, this is fun. You yeah, know, like, yeah. I can wear them every day, but... I was yeah. curious and I tried it. You've got to live that life. You've got to live the leather pant life. You got to. You got to try it just for a moment. Also, I like that. You know, like some of the moments that occurred to me is I like the the episode with that guy when you recorded all of the the negative things that he had said oh, about yeah. himself and confronted him with them. That was very very powerful and and then helped him to deconstruct those beliefs. That was beautiful. Thank you. And the one uh, that I just tagged a little while ago about that policeman who I really liked actually, and I feel this is very relevant in what's happening in both your country and my country right now is forming new alliances between presumed adversaries you know like when you see sort of a white middle-aged a slightly overweight cop you know we're pretty quick to i you know my way of personally trying to deal with it is like i try to when i meet men that i'm intimidated by or feel like i might not like i try my best to think that that, that there is a beautiful vulnerable person in there and Agreed. i'm gonna communicate with that person so i really like that exchange between you and that cop and i think it was maybe even in the south wasn't it yeah it was yeah it was, that was a powerful episode because it's exactly what you just said it's about seeing someone and saying inside of there there's a vulnerable person and when i first met him because because of the way that we are pulled over, I immediately was thinking to myself, oh. I was like, I, I don't want to. I'm going to close myself off. I, I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to help him. I literally said that to the producers. I was like, I, I'm turned off here. I'm, I'm pretty you know, good. And the network didn't try to set us up. They, they didn't want me driving that day. They had wanted Bobby to drive. But 
because it was so far out and I have a tendency to fall asleep in car rides more than 10 minutes if I'm not driving. So um, adorable. <laughs> so I'm like, I was like, I have to drive or I won't be on camera because I'll be asleep. And so they fought me because they knew the uh, joke or the thing they had and they didn't they weren't trying to trigger me. But because of my adamant, persistent, I drove and then it happened. And then I was like, oh, I don't want to help this guy. But I finally had to let go of that ego and that feeling and say, you know what? Inside of him, is there a vulnerable, loving human being? And I think as for a lot of people, if people could just look at someone and say, that's a little boy or a little girl right there, or a little person. That's when you're able to go back to saying, I want to be a little bit more gentle with them. Because as adults, we're not gentle with each other because we don't see the humanity in us. And so to help people see the humanity, think about that person as a child. If they were a little three-year-old in front of you saying the most absurd things, you wouldn't say, F you, I don't like you. <laughs> you would say, come here, let's talk about it. Let's figure out why you're saying those things. Let me tell you why I feel this way. You would have a dialogue with them. You'd be gentle. And I and so have I had to chocolate. get to that. Have a lighter. Yeah, have a chocolate, have a lighter. <laughs> and, and so I have to do that. And with him, it was great because it was so impactful. We hurt each other. He he became into a space of talking about Black Lives Matter and me talking about my fears and my anxiety around the militarization of police in our country. Cool. And, and what I love about him is that he and I are still friends to this day. And when he was this past election voting, he didn't change his political views, but he called me and he said when he went into the voting booth, he thought about me and my sons. And it helped him to choose candidates who are not going to destroy or make me feel as if I was bad. Oh my and I'm God, like, lovely. I'm like, that's all that it's about. You know, I'm not telling him that he's wrong for being a Republican or he's wrong or right for being a Democrat. I'm saying, just think about me as the same way I would think about you and your daughters. And that's, that's, that was beautiful that we had that connection. Yeah, and that's a very beautiful message to emerge from a show that superficially is about style. Yeah. You know what I mean? And what I like about style is very observable. We can all see you look better dressed this way than you look dressed that way mm -hmm. and that the grooming is fantastic. And as I say, all of the participants in the show, the Fab Five, yeah. are all sort of like uh, doing it in a very, very loving way. But when it's but like what I feel like the, so the success of the show, this is my, my personal pundit opinion, is based upon is that it shows the power of love, of acceptance, of reaching out to people mm -hmm. and that this can be it's good to see that in popular media because that is what you we could diagnose as part of the problem that's happening across the world is people are polarizing and opposing at a time when actually these differences are pretty irrelevant and very irrelevant if we just talk to each other if we just took our egos out and said i'm going to listen to you and i'm going to give you an opportunity to listen to me without judgment see too often when people talk they already have a response so they're not really empathetically listening to other people and other people are not empathetically listening to them because it's like if i know you're different than me i've already got in my mind what i'm going to say to you to tell you that you're wrong yeah i've got an opinion on that is my opinion yeah exactly and we're done instead of saying well let me just listen and then after I hear you speak, then formulate my opinion on what you said. One of the, mm. the greatest qualities that I, I and I applaud myself uh, having is that I'm a really good listener. Um, people can talk to me for an hour and I will be able to go back and track every point that was made and address it 
yeah. in a pretty seamlessly way. I don't, I, I, I'm able to hear because I'm not listening, waiting for the next response. I'm listening just to what you're about to say. And then I'm like, oh, now let me talk about this, that, <laughs> that versus, oh no, I got to say my point on this. And then mm. I haven't heard anything else because I'm so stuck on making sure you hear this point. And I think that's what the guys and I do really well. And um, thank you for acknowledging the success of being about that open and loving because, you know, part of it, I do feel very proud that I brought this element into the show. And this is never to take away from my brothers because they're extremely talented. Like I could never stand for three hours and four hours and do someone's hair because I'd feel too nervous that I'd wreck them and then they would be left to live with whatever hairstyle I put on them or, you know, the judgment of building someone's house in four days. Yeah, unbelievable. Couldn't do it. But I do, you know, most people recognize that when I come on camera is when the tears are usually going to come because I am digging deep quickly. And I think that has added to the element of the show from it not just being superficial. It adds another layer of what is going on at the core. And in the season one, the producer's you didn't really see that that much. I was having these long five hour conversations that were getting edited into me showing them a a photo album, which I was embarrassed by. And, um, as it came out, the audience started saying, we want more of what Karamo is doing. We want to see behind season two. They put it in more. And then it became even more that by season three. Now I don't do any other thing, but sit down and have a one-on-one mental health, um, conversation and it, it it's working it's working 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 that's fantastic and it is much needed because you can see that there's a sort of a global mental health crisis as exemplified by the opioid thing and I can personally testify to your uh, qualities in guru ship <laughs> and therapy so you hit me up with some information about them negative comparisons and I'm going to take that gift that you've given me oh Karama Brown thank you so much for coming on thank Under the Skin it was thank such you. a beautiful conversation I, I had high expectations I was very much excited to meet you and I feel that it went even better than I'd hoped thank, thank you. you I'm glad you are phenomenal. I don't want to do the thing like you do on this show. Ah, ah, ah. Oh, three. Three. It's always three. <laughs> it's always three. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that incredible episode with Karamo Brown. Check out his podcast as well on Luminary. What a fantastic, lovely man. Remember to let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at True Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with the hashtag under the skin. We're both on the new uh, Luminary podcast app. Sign up at luminary.link forward slash Russell to get free months free. Under the skin will only be available on Luminary from the 20th of May, so you need to do the sign up before then. Have a listen to some previous episodes like Hindi Andrews talking about activism and, and global black revolution. Wendy Mandy talking about spirituality. Physicist Brian Cox talking about meaning and power and of course physics francesca and raul martinez talking about activism fantastic episode and please subscribe and share it remember i'm doing more live shows in los angeles check out russellbrand.com and my social media sites for that and mentors have a look at mentors it's out in the u.s and canada now and also rebirth is still on netflix thank you for listening to under the skin from luminary media with me russell brand